Welcome to Home of the Brave. I'm Scott Carrier. It may seem like I've been taking a break, and maybe I did take a break. Covering the presidential elections left me feeling like I'd lost hope in America and the entire world, and that can only go on for so long. It's not much of a story, the bitter ending. So a few weeks ago, I decided to do a story about grizzly bears because grizzly bears are the ultimate symbol of wilderness, and I believe there's hope in wilderness. Specifically, it would be a story about the battle over management of the greater Yellowstone grizzly bear, the bears that live in and around Yellowstone National Park, a huge area, ten times bigger than the park itself, three times the size of the state of Vermont. It's called the greater Yellowstone ecosystem. The bears there have been protected from hunting and human encroachment since 1975 when they were placed on the list of endangered species. At that time, their population was about 200, but now it's up to about 700, and the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service is planning to take them off the list soon, probably by the end of the year. They say it's a success story. The federal government protected the bear under the Endangered Species Act, and the bear came back. Time to delist the grizzly and return their management to the states of Montana, Wyoming, and Idaho, which will all then allow trophy hunts of the bear and perhaps seek profits from commercial developments in the bear's habitat. But there are people, including respected bear biologists, who say the greater Yellowstone grizzly population is still endangered, that the bears are in fact experiencing dramatic changes in their environment due to the warming climate, and that the Fish and Wildlife Service is ignoring the effects of climate change for reasons of political expediency, basically kowtowing to the state fish and game departments, rich white hunters, mining and energy industries, and local ranchers. That's the argument in a nutshell. But when you pull it apart and look at each piece, it becomes incredibly complex. The social and economic and political factions become an ecosystem unto themselves. For the past couple of weeks, I've been driving around talking to people on both sides of the issue, and now I'm overwhelmed with the interviews, over 20 hours, and I don't know where to start except with a tangent. When our daughter, Jessie, was a mere five months old, we went camping for three weeks up high in a mountain range I won't say by name. Let's just say these mountains are within the greater Yellowstone ecosystem. I had my first mystical experience in these mountains as an 11-year-old tenderfoot boy scout, fly fishing on a lake alone at sunset. Back then, they'd take little kids into the wilderness mountains and let them wander off to fish. In fact, our scoutmaster taught us to fish. I probably wasn't supposed to be alone, but I was, and I got mesmerized by the sunlight reflecting off the rippled water. Each ripple reflected a tiny, sharply focused sun, a thousand of them blinking in waves. There were pine trees and grass and flowers along the shoreline, the mountain wall, big clouds building and rushing across the sky, and it all felt like one thing, 
one living thing partly composed of frequencies and patterns of energy that I'd never seen back home in my neighborhood or in school. I fell in love with those mountains. So when Jesse was a baby, my wife and I hiked for a couple of days in those same mountains, up and over an 11,000-foot pass and down to a lake at 9,500 feet, set up camp in a small, circular meadow, a grove surrounded by big, old, white-bark pine trees, pines that are shaped more like maples or oaks with branches that spread out into a broad canopy, which we needed for protection from really very frightening thunderstorms that shook our bones. The branches also came in handy for this thing we brought along for Jesse. I wouldn't call it a toy. It's more a device for little kids, five to nine months old, a jump seat you hang from an open doorway. It's an enclosed canvas seat attached to a cable, which is attached to a big metal spring that clamps onto the molding above a doorway. You put the baby's legs through the holes in the seat, adjust the cable so his or her feet just touch the floor, and then they start bouncing. They can get like a foot or two of air, and it's hilarious, laughing, screaming, and the best part is they're trapped. They can't go anywhere. We hung the jump seat from a white bark pine branch overlooking the lake, a good place to put Jesse while Hillary cooked or boiled water to wash diapers. I helped with the diapers some. Usually, I was fishing. I remember very distinctly coming back to camp one evening and seeing Hillary at the fire and Jesse bouncing up and down below the tree, singing to the lake and blathering back and forth with squirrels in the trees. And I thought, she's good for life. She's going to be just fine because she has the wild thing inside her. But when I went back to that spot last year, by myself, the white bark pine trees surrounding the grove were all dead, killed by mountain pine beetles. The trees were ghost-like, and the grass that should have been green was brown and sparse, and there were no flowers, no bees, no deer flies. It was still and quiet, like everything was dying. Well, the same thing has been happening up high all across the greater Yellowstone ecosystem. Public land, the largest, most pristine wilderness in the lower 48, and the ridgelines and high plateaus are now ghost forests. The reason I'm telling this story as a beginning to a series about grizzly bears is because the bears in greater Yellowstone used to depend on white bark pine trees. They ate the seeds the pine nuts in the fall before going into hibernation. They have to put on three to 400 pounds of fat to get through five months in their dens. And the white bark pine nuts have as much fat per pound as chocolate, almost as much as butter. So grizzly bears love them, especially female grizzly bears with cubs or expecting cubs. But now the white bark pine is nearly extinct in the greater Yellowstone ecosystem. Dr. Jesse Logan is a retired forest ecologist who lives in Paradise Valley, Montana, just north of Yellowstone National Park. He used to study white bark pine trees for the Forest Service. These are druid trees, man. I mean, they're amazing. Uh, ancient, live over a thousand years. Uh, just, just, you know, I'm at a loss for words on just how spectacular these forests are. 
I think of uh, conifers like ponderosa pine, like uh, lodgepole pine, they occupied North America from the south. They moved up from Mexico concurrent. So did mountain pine beetle. But whitebark pine, humans, and grizzly bears all occupied North America from Siberia. So there's an association uh, of humans and bears and whitebark that goes back to time beyond memory, before the Pleistocene, back to, to the beginning, you know. In 2003, we crested the ridge and uh, in this forest where you couldn't find mountain pine beetle activity, all of a sudden there were spots of red trees. The, the beetle has to kill the tree uh, to successfully reproduce, so the needles turn red and they're very obvious. And my sense was, oh shit, man, it's happening. And unfortunately, that was exactly right. The next year, 2004, uh, the spots had spread and started to merge. By 2006, probably nine, over 90% of the cone-bearing trees were, had been killed. We're standing with Dr. Logan outside in the Tom Minor Basin, just north of the boundary of Yellowstone National Park. It's a place where people go in the fall to watch grizzly bears that have come down from the mountains looking for other sources of food besides pine nuts, like caraway roots and cow pastures or the gut piles left by elk and moose hunters. Sometimes the bears run into hunters and bad things happen. Bears get shot or hunters get mauled. In fact, yesterday, unfortunately, a hunter was uh, mauled in this area, just got between, apparently, I don't know the full story, but apparently got between a saw and a cup. And uh, so, you know, we're standing in a pretty remote place, uh, you know, a road, rural road. It's lined with I don't know how many cars and how many people. It's, and they're here because we're seeing bears. You can see them? One, two, three, four, five. And, right, uh, Sometimes uh, in pastures, this pasture on the Bee Bar Ranch has had as many as 20, 20 plus grizzly bears visible feeding on caraway. And that has a couple of important influences. You know, caraway or biscuit root, those sorts of things are, are good uh, food resources, but not nearly the quality of pine nuts. And there's not a lot of other high quality food resources in this system, meat. That's about it. And there has been a shift to meat, uh, and meat is a high-quality food resource, but it's a very different resource. With uh, pine nuts, no threat to the grizzly. Really important for sows, particularly with sows with cubs. With meat, conflicts with humans are much greater than they are up in the high country. Last year, uh, in this ecosystem, uh, there were 56 known fatalities primarily inter negative interactions with humans and grizzly bears, which the rule of thumb is about two for one. So somewhere around 100 bears in this ecosystem died last year. Out of a population of 700, uh, the second slowest reproducing mammal in North America. And to tell me, climate change isn't an issue, they'll adjust, 
when you have things like that going on with federal protection, and now you're talking about lifting federal protection, that's unsustainable. You don't need a PhD in population ecology to recognize that. It's, it's a system under dramatic change, and the scary part is they're happening so rapidly. Dr. Logan's argument is not new. There's substantial evidence going back to the early 1990s showing a direct correlation between whitebark pine seed availability and grizzly bear survival and reproduction. More pine nuts equals more grizzlies. Less pine nuts equals less grizzlies, both because of the loss of the source of fat in the fall before hibernation and because of the increased mortality due to grizzlies coming into greater contact with humans. And yet, in 2007, with whitebark pines dying all over the place, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service decided to take the greater Yellowstone grizzly off the list of endangered species. That was the first time it happened, and it was challenged in court by a coalition of environmentalists. In 2011, after four years of litigation, the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals said the Fish and Wildlife Service had been arbitrary and capricious in its scientific reasoning and ordered the service to put the grizzly bear back on the list and go back and do some better science. Specifically, they needed to answer one question. Well, the, the question really was, um, how has widebark pine decline affected the grizzly bear population and what are the potential consequences for the future of this, this population? That's USGS wildlife research biologist Frank Van Manen, team leader for the study group chosen to answer the court's question. Van Manen's study team was given only 18 months to come up with an answer, not enough time for new field studies, so they reviewed the data they already had, going back 40 years, to compare the diet and overall health of grizzly bears before and after the decline of whitebark pine trees. What were your results or what were your conclusions? Uh, in a nutshell, what, what our results were, and, and surprising to some of us, uh, to be honest, was that um, the effect of, of whitebuck pine decline is real. I mean, the, the, this, this is uh, a resource that, uh, that has changed tremendously for, for grizzly bears, but that they found alternative food sources within their home ranges um, that were still maintaining their body condition the same body weight that, that they had in, in earlier years. No major differences there. We documented over 260 different food items that bears were consuming in this ecosystem alone. So they were able to, to shift their diets um, in a very adaptable way. They, they really showed quite a bit of uh, you know, what we refer to as plasticity. That tells me that, that as when they can find the resources necessary to survive and, and to remain, to keep the body condition that they have and, and remain the body uh, growth, um, to be able to do so within their established home ranges means that, uh, that the resources within those home ranges have really not changed dramatically. Um, what climate change would do to other resources in the long run, that's, that's still a big question, of course. But at least for the time being, I, I think we can feel fairly secure that, that grizzly bears can, can handle these type of changes. You know, I'm not an advocate for any position. I'm not for or against delisting, by the way, and, and our team doesn't have a position on that. 
um, we we would the only advocates that we are for is for good science. Right, but the study team's conclusion that the loss of white bark pine nuts has not adversely affected the grizzly bears is now being used by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service to justify delisting the grizzly again, perhaps in the next couple of months. There are other biologists, however, biologists who do not work for the government, who disagree with the study team's findings and the quality of their work. Dr. David Matson. All of the um, researchers over at the Grizzly Bear Study Team think of themselves as being honest, objective scientists. And I think they try to be honest, objective scientists. But for example, me looking at the Grizzly Bear Study Team and what they're doing from the outside, it, it looks like a fundamental betrayal of the public trust my bottom line conclusion is that the grizzly bear study team has demonstrated one thing, and that is that they can bury us in bullshit if they want. I'm going to end the first episode here. In the next episode, I'll present Matson's rebuttal and what he thinks is really going on here. One thing I want to say about bears is they can stand on two legs with their hands facing up, palms to the sky, like we do. And for that reason alone, I don't think we should kill them. I'd like to thank radio producer Liza Lichtenfeld for helping me with these stories. She came along for the interviews and has been very helpful with the editing. I'd also like to thank Tanya Wendling and Chandler Pyle for putting us up in Livingston, Barrett Golding and Elliot Woods for feeding us in Bozeman, and Jeff Rice for the audio recordings from Yellowstone. If you want to help support this program, and specifically the stories about grizzly bears, go to our website, homebrave.com, and look for buttons to donate, subscribe, and purchase Home of the Brave t-shirts, patches, and tote bags. The money really helps, because I have no other source of income other than listener donations. Basically, my business model is to produce good stories, hoping that people will donate so I can keep producing more good stories. So if you like these stories, I'd appreciate your support. Okay, thanks for listening.